March 4th, 2021. Welcome to the Tori Says Show. Um, well, today is a really exciting day. Uh, we're going to analyze President Trump's speech, and we're going to remind ourselves exactly uh, what uh, was really said and visit the past, past, like, way past. And then the past is in, you know, 12 years ago, past two. So that way we can see it come full circle. Um, tomorrow we're going to talk about black boxes. <laughs> and that'll be fun. I, I, I wanted to say, um, you know, there's a going theme with my girls, always. Uh, you know, when we'd uh, be at places and, you know, do something like, for example, uh, we buy a cake. This is just an example. And um, I would distribute it amongst the four of us, you know, and there wouldn't be enough for a fourth. So I'd be like, oh, you know, I'm not this, right? Or um, I didn't really want any or, you know, and, and that's because, you know, for my kids and at that time, um, you know, my husband, you know, they, they come first for me. And that's, I think every person feels like that when, when they love their, their family. Uh, 
And the joke was always like, oh, you're always the hero. Want to be the hero again. Sometimes it was said in a spiteful way, other times playfully. Um, you know, I always... Uh, I'm always of the fact of take people at 100% and always give without um, expecting to receive. Now, we say this and we try to practice it, but in essence, whenever uh, we give something, we expect to receive, right? Well, yesterday I saw one of the moderators text, hey, check my DM. And I'm like, oh no, what happened? You know, while, why did I even look at my computer? It, it wrecked me in, in, a, in a good way. I have never in my life been so taken back. It was something that one, I didn't expect ever, ever in my life. And, and two, it was so kind that it just overwhelmed me. I've never, ever had something like that happen to me before, uh, ever, ever, like ever, ever, ever. And, you know, for someone who says, well, um, you know, you give and, and you will receive, right? I never expected something like this. I expect prayers. I expect that, you know, when shit goes south, I get a bit of a, a break maybe because, you know, um, you know, not so bad. But, you know, when my car went poof, disappeared, you know, it turns out, you know, there's technical things like who's the sole owner, who's co-owner. And the car thing is a real pain point. Like all I do is bitch about that to my, my close friends. That's all I complain about. And, you know, that just came so far, like I was not expecting it. Like even for my birthday, you know, I was like, oh, it's a Monday. I don't want to do something on a Sunday because I got shit to do on Monday. And, you know, uh, I get forced downtime. Okay. I'll, I'll tell you a friend of mine today, someone that helps me out with the Ohio things, right. That I talk to and that I see because we go to the same church and, um, I get forced downtime once every six weeks. Forced downtime is, you know, I have really long lashes. So I get them relaxed or permed. How do they call them? Where they just like put some chemical there so they don't, so they look okay. So I, they don't look crazy. And I get my eyebrows threaded. At that time, I can't see my phone. I can't talk on the phone. And that's my forced downtime, right? So today I'm supposed to have my forced downtime, which at that time I was going to spend meditating, uh, you know, praying basically that's my meditation zone. I'm probably fall asleep too. Um, to think of how I was going to tackle the situation with the car. I kid you not. After my show yesterday, I went to my bank and all I did was complain, complain, complain. And I was like, you know, what does a girl have to do? Like I've saved this, uh, like tell me what I need to do so that I can get a vehicle. Well, you could just, I don't want to buy something that's going to break down on me. Cause you know, my eldest daughter, she's great with cars. I suck. I suck. I'm completely, you know, I have not learned that and I don't feel like learning it. Cause I have to get under a car. I'm sure if I, you know, <laughs> So it was a pain point and I didn't even tell anyone except for, you know, when Gavin called me and I was like, yo, let me call you back. I'm bitching at the bank, bank manager again, you know, because I'm like, okay, so what am I supposed to do? Like, what do you do? Well, you know, you, you don't have bad credit. You just don't have enough. And I was like, all right, so how much money do you want to pretend to give me something? How much more do I need to save? Help me. And the guy was just looking at me like, whatever. And I was so upset. I was like, damn, I'm such a good customer and I've been so nice. And I was bitching. And then that came, uh, guys, I was crying till about 2 a.m. in the morning. 
I was, cause I didn't know how to respond. I'm, I'm so grateful, but at the same time, I'm like, this is so surreal, so surreal that I have to not worry about that because that was my concern. Like I'm, I mean, enterprise loves me, right? I get good rates anyway, <laughs> but it was a, it's just so crazy. I've never had that. I wish that every single one of you listening to me right now experience the same emotion. I, I guess maybe not so much the crying. Damn, I'm doing it again. See, this is it. I really wish every single one of you to feel what I feel right now. Sans the crying. Ooh. Anyway, and Bergie's not going to be up here for my birthday because he's taking a detour to Texas. And so I couldn't even have a conversation with him. And we've just concluded that I am emotionally hindered completely. I do not know how to accept any of this. I really don't. All right. So thank you. Um, geez, thank you. I can possibly even buy a Tesla. Oh my gosh. That would mean that Elon would have direct contact with me <laughs> because apparently he talks to all these <laughs> Tesla people. I don't know. I, Tesla wouldn't be reasonable for me, uh, where I'm, where I'm at. Um, but I've always wanted one. I keep writing him a damn letter saying, give me one. I didn't write one this year and I still haven't done it. Damn it. I should, you know, you never know, <laughs> but, um, it's just, I'm overwhelmed. And I really wish that every single one of you listening at any time that you experience this, it's like the most surreal feeling when you don't, you know, when you don't expect it. And it's just like, and you're just like, yeah, right. No, because you, it doesn't fit into, there we go, your reality. Because my reality now has been shattered, right? It's completely shattered. Um, completely. Because this isn't something I would expect ever, ever. So how do we start analyzing what President Trump said? I think in order to understand President Trump, um, we have to understand another president that's very similar to him, a president that was full of controversy, a president that had people working within his own, um, within his own administration to unseat him. You know, we, we talked about Abraham Lincoln, how his own generals were against him, how everybody was against him. Right. And I think it's important. We visit that and also visit the untold story of Alamo and how it all started. It was a, come and take it. Do you know what the come and take it was for though? That's really important to know. That's really important to know. And I was lucky to have stumbled upon something that explains that. So those are the two things we need to know. Also, I want you to beware because this is creeping up and I'm like so um, excited. I have my counterpart that's working on um, certain aspects of it, but, and, and it's so incredible because we didn't even talk about this. And for all those people out there that, um, have faith in, in, in the future of America that have faith, um, in working together and being united and all those that have been following Q postings, postings, not, not, <laughs> I'm not going to be mean Q postings, right. And understand that there's, there's more to this, that this is really biblical and understand that things are happening in ways that people cannot conceive. What I also want you to understand is this, that playbook has also happened. So um, there was a, 
a movement a while back with the CCP. And um, uh, it was by Falun Gong, right? Very peaceful, mass peaceful event. And a false flag was orchestrated, as you know. And with that excuse, the CCP was able to round people up as Falun Gong practitioners. I want you to be extremely careful for organized events, uh, protests. I would, I will stand by what I've said before the president said, yeah, come on down, right? And do the things that do not um, allow for evil to infiltrate. Because even those steps were taken to avoid Antifa, and, you know, all these other organized, they're organizations, okay? They have chapters, so I don't want to hear any bull crap of its whatever. But they couldn't blatantly do it, but they infiltrated. So any opportunity to infiltrate, right, should be deterred. This is why we are using our systems, our courts, and we are going to be disappointing on a state level to ensure that union. Um, my show still says March 3rd, right? <laughs> I have to fix that stuff. Um, I want you guys to uh, stay true to that. Like if you organize with friends or organize with people um, to go places, uh, make sure that it's a, you know, a closed place, a, a, um, and not something that can be infiltrated, please. Uh, these are their usual MOs. So before we start with President, we'll be going back and forth, President Trump's um, State of the Union. I want us to start with a very old um, clip by Justice Clarence Thomas, where he spoke about Abraham Lincoln. I think this is, I don't think any of you have... Um, ever heard this. I mean, maybe you have, maybe you haven't, but it's quite exceptional when you see the similes. Lee, and in the company of such distinguished guests, I warn you, this may run a bit long. This weekend's conference asks the question, what are the lessons that Abraham Lincoln might be able to teach us today? Tonight, I will attempt to offer a modest answer that I have drawn from Lincoln's battle against slavery. I hope you will find it relevant to the challenges we all must confront as Americans today and to the challenges I must also confront in a very particular way as a judge. First, let me offer a disclaimer. I am not a Lincoln scholar, amateur or otherwise, but since my youth, I have admired him greatly. Back then, we thought of Lincoln as the great emancipator. In difficult times that would follow in my life, he represented a model of perseverance. And in my early years in Washington, he served both as an inspiration and a beacon that highlighted the underlying principles of our country, especially the Declaration of Independence. So my interest in him has been deeply personal and long-standing. Lincoln's battle against slavery and the threat it posed to our nation's survival is one of the most important chapters in our nation's history. Lincoln saved the Union and ultimately prevailed over the institution of slavery. 
because of his extraordinary understanding of the bedrock principles of our constitutional democracy, that government by consent must be preserved if liberty is to be secured, and that to accomplish this, the separation of powers between the three branches of the federal government and between the sovereign powers of the national government and those of the states must be maintained. Lincoln's understanding of how the structure of our government preserves its purpose, liberty, also enabled him to see how the branches of our government could be manipulated to achieve ends inconsistent with that purpose. Specifically, it was Lincoln's ability to see how bad but popular piece of how a bad but popular piece of legislation would combine with a bad but popular Supreme Court decision that spurred him to join the battle against slavery in time to ensure a victory. The lessons we can draw from Lincoln's experience are enduring, are enduring ones and can help us address some of the most challenging issues we face today, particularly to the extent those issues result from or are exacerbated by the ever-increasing role of courts and the growing social and political apathy toward the principles of liberty on which our country is founded. This is particularly true as providing security appears to be displacing the protection of liberty as the government's purpose. How Lincoln used the ideological and structural underpinnings of our Constitution to defeat the evil of slavery is a wonderful story. It illustrates how one of our country's darkest moments produced one of its greatest leaders and also revealed the formidable strength and virtue of our constitutional structure. As many of you no doubt already know, the threat created by the Kansas-Nebraska Act in 1864 that slavery would expand into the new American territories of the Louisiana Purchase was the principal reason Lincoln returned to politics and ultimately ascended to the presidency. After serving a single term in Congress, 1847 to 1849, Lincoln had decided to return to Illinois and practice law. But when Congress passed the Kansas-Nebraska Act in 1854, which repealed the portion of the Missouri Compromise that prohibited slavery north of the parallel 3630 North in the Louisiana Purchase Territory, except, of course, for Missouri, and opened the door to slavery's expansion into the Kansas Territory, Lincoln once again committed to run for office. The Kansas-Nebraska Act signaled a sea change in slavery's future because before the Act's passage, slavery had been barred from most of the existing territories since the time of the founding. The Act's proponents tried to understate the impact of this change, arguing that the new legislation would simply allow each new territory to decide for itself whether or not to permit slavery within its borders, and that the rest of the country should, as Lincoln later put it, care not what each territory decided. This populist rhetoric did not prevent Lincoln from seeing the Kansas-Nebraska Act for what it was, 
a crucial first step by pro-slavery forces to expand the institution of slavery across the country. So great were Lincoln's fears about the act and its consequences that he decided to re-enter politics, running for the state legislature and campaigning for other anti-Nebraska Whigs. Lincoln spoke vehemently against slavery, giving nearly 200 speeches. Perhaps the best early example of these, which also previewed his later arguments, is his speech at Peoria in October of 1854, in which he rebutted a three-hour argument in favor of the Kansas-Nebraska Act by Senator Stephen Douglas, who led the efforts to pass the act in the Senate. Lincoln set out the basis for his vehement opposition to the inevitable expansion of slavery under this legislation. This declared indifference, he said, but as I must think, covert real zeal for the spread of slavery, I cannot but hate. I hate it because of the monstrous injustice of slavery itself. I hate it because it deprives our Republican example of its just influence in the world. Wow. So he hated because it deprives the Republican example of its just influence in the world. That was, that is a key phrase that should be stated over and over and over again. Think of all the things right now that are depriving our Republican example of its just influence in the world. Right now, our nation. That is incredible. Because if we revisit every single speech, every single rally, the president has been pointing that out to all of us. That we are depriving our Republican example, we are not a republic. Think about it. Just, just, these are, man, this has to be one of the most amazing speeches by anyone and how he so rightfully puts it. I mean, I mean, you read his dissent, which was incredible, but this is just, Wow enables the enemies of free institutions with plausibility to taunt us as hypocrites, causes the real friends of freedom to doubt our sincerity, and especially because it forces so many really good men amongst ourselves into an open war with the very fundamental principles of civil liberty criticizing the Declaration of Independence and insisting that there is no right principle of action but self-interest. Douglas defended the act on the grounds of popular sovereignty, or as Lincoln's, Lincoln referred to, it, referred to it, squatter sovereignty. Exactly. Do you see that now, though? How many things are popular sovereignty or what's popular, the public opinion? And what he said, it was squatter sovereignty. This is something that should be incorporated in our everyday debates with people.
These are examples that should be brought up with the violations of all our rights, not just as citizens, but as state citizens, because right now the states are being imposed to cover the debt with these bills that they're putting up. They want us to cover the debt for, for states like New York, like Michigan. Have you seen the bill that they are pushing? The pork that they've stuffed into it? This is this is all been foretold. Again, it was back in the 1800s. We are now in the 2000s, right? 200 years later, this stuff is still applicable, only upgraded right? Only upgraded with other technical issues. And remember, after the assassination of Abraham Lincoln, all we have had is people that have taken power of this nation in what we like to call psychological operations on the people via the media, via fluffy words that they use to to, to sway public opinion. And all they've done is chipped away at the foundations of this nation. Original intent. What was the original intent of this union? What was the original intent of our Constitution? No one looks at that. They just look at how does it fit in right now? Original intent. Arguing that the people of each territory should not have their position on slavery dictated to them by the National Congress. Lincoln was not persuaded. The doctrine of self-government, he said, absolutely and eternally right, but it has no just application as here attempted. Or perhaps I should rather say that whether it has such just application depends upon whether a Negro is not or is a man. If he is not a man, why in that case, he who is a man may, as a matter of self-government, do just as he pleases with him. But if the Negro is a man, is it not to that extent a total destruction of self-government to say that he too shall not govern himself? When the white man governs himself, that is self-government. But when he governs himself and also governs another man, that is more than self-government. That is despotism. If the Negro is a man, why then my ancient faith teaches me that all men are created equal, and that there can be no moral right in connection with one man's making a slave of another. Impassioned, Lincoln continued, what I do say is that no man is good enough to govern another man without that other's consent. I say this is the leading principle, the sheet anchor of American republicanism. Our Declaration of Independence says, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, and that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, 
liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. To Lincoln, then, slavery was an evil that deviated from this principle, and thus from the course set by the founders in the Declaration of Independence. In 1858, the Republican Party that Lincoln helped found to oppose slavery nominated him to run for the U.S. Senate against Douglas. Upon accepting the nomination, Lincoln reiterated his view of the enormous consequences of the spread of slavery on the future of the Union. A house divided against itself cannot stand. I believe this government cannot endure permanently half slave and half free. I do not expect the union to be dissolved. I do not expect the house to fall, but I do expect it will cease to be divided. It will become all one thing or all the other. Either the opponents of slavery will arrest the further spread of it and place it where the public mind shall rest in the belief that it is in the course of ultimate extinction, or its advocates will push it forward till it shall become alike lawful in all the states. It was in this house divided speech that Lincoln warned the country that slavery would not die off quietly as the proponents of the Missouri Compromise might have hoped. Instead, Lincoln knew that the Kansas-Nebraska Act had transformed the question of slavery into the great question of his time. A self-taught student of history, Lincoln understood that all great questions demand answers. Compromise of any sort can delay the inevitable for only so long. Now, that's another key. Compromise of any sort can delay the inevitable for so long. So what have we been compromising all these years? We have been compromising our values for the sake of the greater good. We have been compromising our freedoms for the sake of the greater good. Compromise is delaying the inevitable. And here we are at that point of the inevitable where we have to think, is this it? Do we just put our hands up and say, well, you know, too much has gone on. I mean, we can't fight this. This is where real questions come in. This is where the hard questions come in. And this is where the president gave you all the answer you needed to know on that day. So we're going to listen to this today. And we're going to be stopping just to see if you caught what he told you. So first things first. It's, wait a minute. This is a State of the Union. The actual supposed, right, president-select. Well, he hasn't addressed the nation now, has he? He's not addressed anything, but this man has. And listen to how he's speaking. 
Thank you, everybody. So great to be with you. Thank you. Great to be back at CPAC. The place I have really, I, ha I love this place. Love you people. So thank you. Thank you very much. First of all, I want to thank Matt Schlapp and his very, very incredible wife and boss, Mercedes, who have been fantastic friends and supporters and so great when I watch them on television defending me. Nobody has a chance. So I want to thank Matt and Mercedes. And when Matt called and asked, I said, absolutely, I'll be there with you. I mean, the real reason I said it, I didn't want him to go against me because that, that one you can't beat. So I said, absolutely. And it really is an honor to be here. I wouldn't miss a chance to talk to my friends. These are my friends. And we'll see you again next year and the year after that. And I'll be doing this. I'll be doing this with CPAC whenever I can. And I'll make sure that we're here a lot. You know, if you remember my first major speech, sit down, everybody. Come on. You know, the dishonest media, they'll say, he didn't get a standing ovation. You know why? No, you know why? Because everybody stood and nobody sat. So they will say, he never got a standing ovation. Right? So where they are. They are the worst. So, <laughs> sit down. Donald Trump did not get a standing ovation. They leave out the part. They never sat down. They leave that out. So I just want to thank. But you know, my first major speech was at CPAC and probably five or six years ago. First major political speech. And you were there. And it was, I loved it. I loved the people. I loved the commotion. And then they did these polls where I went through the roof and I wasn't even running. Right. But it gave me an idea. And I got a little bit concerned when I saw what was happening in the country. And I said, let's go to it. So it was very exciting. I walked the stage on CPAC. I'll never forget it, really. Uh, I had very little notes and even less preparation. So when you had practically no notes and no preparation, and then you leave and everybody was thrilled, I said, I think I like this business. I would have come last year, but I was worried that I would be, at that time, too controversial. We wanted border security. We wanted very, very strong military. We wanted all of the things that we're going to get. And people consider that controversial, but you didn't consider it controversial. So I've been with CPAC for a long time. All of these years we've been together. And now you finally have a president. Finally. Took you a long time. Took you a long time. And it's patriots like you that made it happen. Believe me. Believe me. You did it because you love your country, because you want a better future for your children, and because you want to make America great again. The media didn't think we would win. The pundits, you're right, they had an idea. The pundits didn't think we'd win. 
The consultants that suck up all that money, oh, they suck it up. They're so good. They're not good at politics, but they're really good at sucking up people's money, especially my opponents, because I kept them down to a minimum. But the consultants didn't think we would win. All right. So those of you that were watching it, unless you were paying attention, you would see the 2017. Didn't sound much different, did it? Didn't sound much different. Now, let's go to last weekend's. Now, this is fun. This is a lot of fun to watch. Because uh, <laughs> now you're going to see, wait a minute. You're right. It opened the same way. It had the same feeling as if nothing's changed. Interesting. And you're going to see changes. Oops. Let me, let me, mm, wrong one. You're going to see changes that, um, You'd be like, wait a minute, I didn't realize that was the case. I didn't see that. I didn't see that. Like, how did that happen? Well, you'll see a lot of things that are going to remind you of uh, Sunday's speech. Okay. So I hope you guys are ready for this because th this isn't even anywhere on YouTube, by the way. So, you know, so we're streaming it from my Twitch. Here we go. There we go. Let's go. Our movement of proud Harvard. And you know what this is? The hardest working people, hardworking American patriots is just getting started. In the end, we will win. We will win. We've been doing a lot of winning. As we gather this week, we're in the middle of a historic struggle for America's future, America's culture, and America's institutions, borders, and most cherished principles. Our security, our prosperity, and our very identity as Americans is at stake, like perhaps at no other time. So no matter how much the Washington establishment and the powerful special interests want to silence us, let there be no doubt, we will be victorious and America will be stronger and greater than ever before. I want to thank my great friends, Matt and Mercedes Schlapp, Matt, thank you. Thank you. Mercedes, thank you very much. And the American Conservative Union for hosting this extraordinary event. They're talking about it all over the world, Matt. I know you don't like that, but that's okay. All over the world. I also want to pay my love and respect to the great Rush Limbaugh. who is watching closely and smiling down on us. He's watching and he's loving it and he loves Catherine. Catherine, thank you for being here. So great, thank you, Catherine. He loved you, Catherine, I will tell you that. So fantastic, thank you, Catherine, very much. To each and every one of you here at CPAC, I am more grateful to you than you will ever know.
We are gathered this afternoon to talk about the future of our movement, the future of our party, and the future of our beloved country. For the next four years, the brave Republicans in this room will be at the heart of the effort to oppose the future of our beloved country. For the next four years, the brave Republicans in this room will be at the heart of the effort to oppose the radical Democrats, the fake news media, and their toxic cancel culture. Something new to our ears, cancel culture. And I want you to know that I'm going to continue to fight right by your side. We will do what we've done right from the beginning, which is to win. We're not starting new parties. You know, they kept saying, he's going to start a brand new party. We have the Republican Party. It's going to unite and be stronger than ever before. I am not starting a new party. That was fake news. Fake news. No. Wouldn't that be brilliant? Let's start a new party and let's divide our vote so that you can never win. No, we're not interested in that. No, we have tremendous... Uh, Mr. McLaughlin just gave me numbers that nobody's ever heard of before. More popular than anybody. That's all of us. It's all of us. Those are great numbers, and I want to thank you very much. Those are incredible numbers. I came here, and he was giving me 95%, 97%, 92%. And I said, they're great, and I want to thank everybody in this room and everybody all throughout the country, throughout the world, if you want to really know that. Thank you, Doug. Thank you. We will be united and strong like never before. We will save and strengthen America, and we will fight the onslaught of radicalism, socialism, and indeed, it all leads to communism once and for all. That's what it leads to. You'll be hearing more and more about that as we go along, but that's what it leads to. You know that. We all knew that the Biden administration was going to be bad, but none of us even imagined just how bad they would be and how far left they would go. He never talked about this. We would have those wonderful debates. He would never talk about this. We didn't know what the hell he was talking about, actually. <laughs> His campaign was all lies, talked about energy. I thought, I said, you know, this guy actually, he's okay with energy. He wasn't okay with energy. He wants to put you all out of business. He's not okay with energy. He wants windmills, the windmills. The windmills that don't work when you need them. Joe Biden has had the most disastrous first month of any president in modern history. That's true. Already the Biden administration has proven that they are anti-jobs, anti-family, anti-borders, anti-energy, anti-women, and anti-science. So right here, the first things first that he puts forward is how uh, Biden said was double speaking. Basically, he was double speaking. He was talking about energy like it's fine. Right. But then within only a month, you see him anti everything that stands that that is American. Anything Americana, he is anti, anti, anti. But. Next week, and I will mention it today, um, 
you're going to see that there's a movement that is anti-old school establishment that wants to propel us into the Seven Nation Armies. Mm? And those Seven Nations have now grown to be many, many more. And actually, the Seven Nation Armies now are the ones for freedom. So I want you to think how things have flipped and switched how those that were supporting freedom were are now the ones that are supporting modern slavery and how those that we consider nations or we have been taught or trained to see them as nations that dismiss freedom are actually the freedom fighters it is the when we want to talk mm, change of shift uh it makes you wonder, were they ever on the other side or was it something that they manufactured? As he speaks, you'll garner more of what I'm trying to say. In just one short month, we have gone from America first to America last. You think about it, right? America last. There's no better example than the new and horrible crisis on our southern border. We did such a good job. It was all worked. Nobody's ever seen anything like we did, and now he wants it all to go to hell. When I left office just six weeks ago, we had created the most secure border in U.S. history. We had built almost 500 miles of the Great Border Wall. That helped us with these numbers because once it's up, you know, they used to say a wall doesn't work well. You know what I've always said? Walls and wheels. Those are two things that will never change. The wall has been amazing. It's been incredible. And little sections of it, to complete, they don't want to complete it. They don't want to complete little sections in certain little areas. They don't want to complete. But it's had an impact that nobody would have even believed. It's amazing considering that the Democrats' number one priority was to make sure that the wall would never, ever get built, would never, ever happen, would never get financed. We got it financed. We ended catch and release, ended asylum fraud, and brought illegal crossings to historic lows. When illegal aliens trespass across our borders, they were promptly caught, detained, and sent back home. And these were some rough customers, I want to tell you, some rough customers were entering our country. It took the new administration only a few weeks to turn this unprecedented accomplishment into a self-inflicted humanitarian and national security disaster. By recklessly eliminating our border, security measures, controls, all of the things that we put into place, Joe Biden has triggered a massive flood of illegal immigration into our country, the likes of which we have never seen before. They're coming up by the tens of thousands. They're all coming to take advantage of the things that he said that's luring everybody to come to America. And we're one country. We can't afford the problems of the world as much as we'd love to. We'd love to help, but we can't do that. So they're all coming because of promises and foolish words. Perhaps worst of all, Joe Biden's decision to cancel border security 
has single-handedly launched a youth migrant crisis that is enriching child smugglers, vicious criminal cartels, and some of the most evil people on the planet. You see it every day. Just turn on the news. You'll see it every day. Now, when he finishes his discussion here, because this is important what he's talking about the border, I want us to flip to a video that's going to rock your world. No one's seen this. And I want you to see what the insane, insane agenda of these young people, the young UN group, are planning. So you can see that what he says is very, very important to things that are happening that you are not seeing, that your news people are not telling you about. Under my administration, we stopped the child smugglers. We dismantled the criminal cartels. We greatly limited drug and human trafficking to a level that nobody actually thought was possible. And the wall helped us a lot. And we protected vulnerable people from the ravages of dangerous predators. And that's what they are, dangerous, dangerous predators. But the Biden administration has put the vile coyotes back in business, and it has done so in a very, very big way. Under the new administration, catch and release has been restored. Can you imagine? We work so hard. Catch, you know what that is. You catch them, you take their name. They may be killers, they may be rapists, they may be drug smugglers. You take their name and you release them into our country. We did the opposite. We not only didn't release them, we had them brought back to their country. Illegal immigrants are now being apprehended and released along the entire southern border, just the opposite of what it was two months ago. They weren't coming because they couldn't get in. Once they think they can get in, they're coming, and they are coming at levels that you haven't even seen yet. By the hundreds of thousands, by the millions, they'll be coming. The Biden administration is now actively expediting the admission of illegal migrants enabling them to lodge frivolous asylum claims and admitting them by the thousands and thousands and thousands a day crowded together in unsanitary conditions despite the ongoing economic and public health crisis, COVID-19, or as I call it, the China virus. There's no masks. There's no double masks. That was a new one that came out two weeks ago. First, Fauci said, you don't need masks, no masks, no good, no, no. Then all of a sudden, he wanted me. Now he wants double masks. No social distancing. No, no. All right. So before we continue, we are now going to visit the Battle of the Alamo. What? Just, you need to hear the real story of what that is all about. Everything that went wrong for the Alamo to happen, and a lot of people don't know what went wrong or how it came to be. So once you understand that, we'll hop over to the most recent discussions of radical leftists that are sitting in Congress. Their plan in regards to immigration and the border, something no one has discussed or seen. Do you remember the Alamo? 
The hard facts about the Battle of the Alamo are not as glorious as many people believe. The defeat would famously inspire hundreds of others to take up arms for Texan independence, and today, most people know all about the outcome and historical influence of the battle. Yet it's what happened in the days before the siege that really provides the context to understand what was going on, what was at stake, and why things turned out the way they did. Today, we're going to take a look at everything that had to go wrong for the Battle of the Alamo to happen. But before we get started, be sure to subscribe to the Weird History channel and let us know in the comments below what other famous battles you'd like to hear about. Okay, so let's head deep into the heart of Texas. When white southern settlers began expanding further into Texas, they brought with them the hope of owning their own property on which they could build cotton plantations. The Mexican cotton industry was big business at the time, and everyone wanted a piece of the action. The Mexicans, however, had a couple of conditions they needed met before they would allow settlers to live on their land. The first was that the settlers had to agree to become Catholic. The second was that they had to become registered Mexican citizens. Once they were in business, Many of the settlers just ignored the conditions, which didn't exactly get things off on the right foot with their hosts. Exacerbating the situation was that most of the settlers brought slaves with them, even though slavery had been abolished in Mexico in 1829. As the settlers were continuing to flaunt Mexican law by keeping slaves and claiming territories beyond what they had been permitted, the Mexican government itself was undergoing changes. Whereas they had once sought to emulate the more decentralized model of the United States, economic hardship and increasing lawlessness convinced conservatives in the government to move toward a more centralized system of power. With a new government, enforcement of import tariffs, anti-slavery ordinances, and immigration laws increased. This was bad news for the settlers living in the border region of Mexican Texas, most of whom were, in fact, illegal immigrants who operated their businesses using slave labor. The settlers called the policies dictatorial and began to rebel. The Mexican government blamed the unrest on the American immigrants who had entered their country illegally and refused to observe Mexican law. So wait, let's just recap. So the Mexicans were upset that Americans were illegal migrants that crossed the border and did not abide by Mexican law. Ah, interesting. The first real battle of the Texas Revolution was the Battle of Gonzales in October of 1835. However, the hostilities had actually started a few days earlier in an American colony that had been established by a guy named Green C. Dewitt. Dewitt had previously convinced the Mexican government to lend the colony a six-pound cannon for the purpose of defending themselves against raids from natives they considered hostile. However, when the Mexican government learned that Dewitt had sent representatives to several conventions they considered treasonous, they dispatched Colonel Domingo de Ugar Tequea of the Mexican army to retrieve the cannon. Well, Wait, just so you understand, the Dewitt asked for a cannon to fend off the Indians, but then the Mexicans were like, yo, he's like getting into these conferences, he's working with people, and it's treasonous what he's doing, let's go get that cannon back. Just so you guys understand what's up. They're like, nah, man, they got salty. They were like, so we're giving him a cannon, and he's like supposed to be using it to be defending, and at the same time, he's working with people that are working against us. <laughs> <laughs> a little cannon was going to help. Did you see how big that cannon was? 
While the colonel probably expected resistance, he couldn't have known that this simple errand would kick off a skirmish between the Texan settlers and the Mexican forces that would quickly become a battle and eventually a full-fledged rebellion. Long story short, the Texans refused to give up the cannon when the Mexican forces demanded it. Making their feelings about the matter as clear as possible, the Texans hung a flag over the cannon that simply read, Come and take it. Within a few days, the Texans' numbers had swollen to over 160 men. They launched a successful surprise attack on the Mexican troops, and with that, the Texas Revolution had begun. Though we know it as a fort, the Alamo was originally built to be a mission, which is a religious outpost used by missionaries as a base for supplies and communication. It was only later, in response to attacks by Native Americans living in the area, that the Mexican army decided to convert the mission into a makeshift fort. The repurposed mission, however, was only intended to withstand attacks by Native tribes. It wasn't designed to stand up against heavy artillery, and it lacked firing ports for riflemen. Catwalks were constructed that allowed defenders to fire over the walls of the fort, but they left the upper torso of the rifleman's body exposed when he stood, so they were less than ideal. After the Battle of Gonzales, many of the settlers who had come to help defeat the Mexican troops went home. They hadn't come prepared for a long encampment, and they simply didn't have adequate provisions. As a result, the once large army was quickly whittled back down to less than 200 men. That was far less manpower and firepower than would be needed to secure a building like the Alamo. In December of 1835, Sam Houston, who was commander-in-chief of the Texas Army, ordered James Neal to take command of the Alamo. Neal obeyed, but only a few months into his command, he had to leave to care for his ill family. Command was transferred to Lieutenant Colonel William B. Travis, who was the highest-ranking officer on the scene at the time. When he got the news of Travis's promotion, Colonel James Bowie, or Bowie if you prefer, namesake of the Bowie knife, was less than pleased. Several of the other soldiers felt similarly and quickly voted Bowie into the commanding role under the belief that his fierce reputation for fighting made him a better commander. That should have been that, but Bowie decided to celebrate his new command by getting extremely drunk and causing a stir in the camp. He eventually agreed to share leadership with Travis. With each passing day, Mexican President Santa Ana grew increasingly furious with the Texas Revolution. He felt that illegal immigrants had crossed into his country, flaunted its culture, values, and laws, and were now literally trying to steal a piece of it. So he wasn't happy. Santa Ana demanded the rebels surrender or suffer the consequences. The Texans refused and were officially declared traitors to Mexico. As such, the Mexican president swore that there would be no prisoners taken. He sent a letter to this effect directly to U.S. President Andrew Jackson. But the letter wasn't widely distributed, and for whatever reason, Jackson failed to notify the American recruits that Mexico wouldn't be sparing their lives. The commanders of the Alamo were under no illusions when it came to evaluating their preparedness for battle. They knew they lacked both provisions and manpower, and they knew it would be a big problem when Mexican forces arrived. Colonel James Neal wrote to General Sam Houston pleading their case. But because Houston didn't think he could spare the men necessary for the defense, he refused the request. Instead, he sent Colonel James Bowie and a small force of about 30 men to remove the fort's artillery and then destroy the building. When Bowie arrived, he realized he didn't have the animals necessary to transport the artillery. 
He was quickly convinced the location held real strategic importance and decided to try and make the case directly to the Texas provisional government. Bowie argued that the fort needed more troops and more weapons if they were to withstand the siege, but it didn't work. The provisional government was in a state of complete disarray and couldn't muster any support. Even if Houston or the Texas provisional government had agreed to help, it's not clear it would have made any difference. Both Bowie and Travis had badly overestimated how long they had until Santa Ana's attack. Santa Ana's siege to take the Alamo began on the 23rd of February, 1836. Rumors of the army's imminent arrival had residents of nearby Bear fleeing. Travis didn't believe the reports, but nonetheless had a lookout placed on the San Fernando Church bell tower. Only a few hours later, scouts reported Mexican troops about a mile and a half outside the town. The Texans were still struggling to put together the manpower, weapons, and supplies they needed for an ongoing siege. They were far from ready when Santa Ana marched into San Antonio with an overwhelming force of approximately 1,500 troops. By comparison, the Alamo Mission defenders were only 188 strong. As if being greatly outnumbered wasn't bad enough, many of the Texan soldiers were merely volunteers who weren't properly trained as soldiers. Nonetheless, when Santa Ana raised the red flag that signified the defenders would be given no quarter, the defenders held their ground. Travis responded by firing a cannon back at the Mexicans. Bowie thought that provocation was a bad idea and sent an emissary to meet Santa Ana. Travis, who resented Bowie's interference, sent his own emissary. Both emissaries were received by the Mexican troops and told that any surrender would have to be unconditional. Once this news was delivered to Bowie and Travis, they settled their differences and defiantly fired the cannon together. The defenders of the Alamo were ridiculously outnumbered and outpowered, but at least they had a tough, battle-hardened leader like Colonel James Bowie to help them through. Right? Well, no, not really. Bowie actually took ill on the second day of the siege and wasn't able to physically assist his men in the defense at all. Two doctors, including the fort surgeon, tried to diagnose him, but neither could determine what was wrong. The colonel was occasionally carried out to rally and encourage the troops, but historians believe it likely had the opposite effect. Seeing their leader and ostensible MVP so sick was probably more demoralizing to the mostly inexperienced squad than anything else. Finally, in the bleak remaining days of the Alamo, Bowie transferred his half of the leadership to Travis. Bowie would die with the rest of the defenders of the Alamo, but his family, who were at the fort with him, would live through the siege. The siege of the Alamo ended on March 6, 1836. It lasted 13 days, during which time all 188 defenders were killed. Only women and children were spared. Though the loss was pretty decisive, historians estimate the meager force managed to wound or kill roughly 600 Mexican soldiers. But more importantly, the encounter triggered a fighting spirit in the Texans that would become a battle cry for the revolution and ultimately lead to the state's independence. Today, the Alamo still stands, right next to a shopping mall times have changed. So what do you think? Do you remember the Alamo? Let us know in the comments below. And while you're at it, check out some of these other videos from our weird history. So I don't think a lot of people knew, um, you know, how that battle happened. Now, I'm going to tell you on February 23rd, uh, which is so bizarre. On February 23rd, there was a meeting 
uh, with um, some radicals. And um, just uh, yesterday, there was another meeting with some radicals that you're going to watch and listen to. Just see what they're planning. This is insane. We're um, standing together when when the when the real moments come, and I know that I'm I'm ready to stand shoulder and shoulder with the people that was just on the screen. So, um, what we what when we want to make sure that we uh, mentioned earlier in this call, United We Dreams undeniable campaign is how we can push the Biden administration and Congress to deliver for immigrants in the first 100 days. We're also really proud to co-chair the We Are Home campaign uh, with many amazing movement leaders within the immigrant justice movement. Um, but we know that our work is rooted in the idea, United We Dream's work is rooted in the idea that our existence is undeniable, that our demands are undeniable, that our power is undeniable. So what you'll see here are our five demands. We demand that citizenship for all 11 million undocumented immigrants Right here, right now, we demand the defunding of ICBP and the police. We demand the immediate protections for our people, starting with the reinstatement and expansion of TPS. Um, and we demand a broad and exclusive COVID-19 relief. We demand a moratorium on enforcement, the release of immigrants held in ICE and CBP detention camps, and their closures right here, right now. If you want to see a cool campaign, watch the Detention Watch Network's first 10 campaigns that are shutting down detention centers across the country. So when, before we move on, I also want to invite you to the event um, that the Frontline is co-sponsoring on March 8th. It's International Women's Day, and the People's Bailout is hosting a live stream called Bread and Roses, Demanding Care and Relief. So at 7 p.m. EST, please join us on March 8th. Join this event to hear from grassroots organizers and legendary black feminist Barbara Smith talk about the um, and demand for 1.9 million, 1.9 trillion stimulus bill that needs to be passed by the Senate next week. Um, oh my so gosh. Congresswoman Rashida is with us tonight. She represents Michigan's 13th district. She's a champion of immigrants, a dear friend, and she's coming to tell us why she fights for immigrant justice tonight and why we must see fund ICBP and the police. Uh, Representative Rashida, it's great to have you. With okay, before she comes on, I wanted to tell you something. One thing about Rashida that a lot of people don't know is that she was actually raised in El Salvador. They left her family left to Palestine and went to El Salvador. Uh, she was never she illegally entered the border with her family from El Salvador. And so the question is, uh, you know, how did they get any legal status and how has that been done? It's a very good question because. Um, El Salvador, what comes out of El Salvador? I want you to think again. What, uh huh, there you go. We're talking cartels, okay? So I want you to remember that. With us tonight. Hey, Gracie. Hello, everyone. Uh, I am in the middle of voting, but I didn't want to uh, miss the opportunity to show just incredible, strong solidarity with all of you. You know that I'm a proud, proud child of immigrants. Uh, my family came uh, to this country from Palestine. My dad, who not only was born in Palestine, but later grew up in Nicaragua, uh, was, he came to this country with only fourth grade education. My mother only eighth grade education, and now their daughter is serving in the United States Congress. These are the stories we need to embrace. 
Wow, she just lied. There's pictures of her in the 80s in El Salvador with her dad. So this is a big deal. She's uh, fabricating. Uh, maybe her dad did grow up in Nicaragua. Maybe so. Maybe so. But I can tell you, her dad met her mom in Palestine, and they came over to El Salvador. I had written extensively on it. There's a lot of paper trail that she came straight from El Salvador, and they entered the border illegally. I don't know why she's wearing a mask outside and online. That's pretty bizarre. But take a listen to what she says. Uh, the fact that my mother was able to become a U.S. citizen with like, what, $35, where now it's $1,000 to even apply. And now more than ever, my mother is hearing the stories of the dehumanization that is happening to immigrants wanting the same opportunities that she got when she got here. And so it is so important that we don't settle. I'm so tired of them using our communities, especially our immigrant communities, as a way to, you know, for fear mongering, as a way to uses other politics, you know, other in politics that really doesn't result in helping anybody in our community be safe or provide services that are needed. And if anything, this pandemic has exposed the need for immigration reform, just in humane immigration reform. And I hope all of us that are involved, you know, seeing the Workers' Families Party and everyone kind of coming together is that we are not a nation that is divided. This is a pastor that told me in Detroit. He's like, we're not a thing that's divided. We are a nation that's disconnected. So I hope that all of our movements, movement to end poverty, movement to end structural racism, movement to fix our immigration system to make it more humane and fair, all of us coming together as one movement uh, that really tries to put our people first, tries to not allow, again, uh, hate to win, and I know not only Gracie, but everyone uh, that is listening, we're going to outwork the hate. We always do. We're not going anywhere, y'all. Like they can pretend that they can continue to do this. We're not going anywhere. But at the same time, at the same time, many of us are so tired of waiting for the political courage and will of many folks that we helped get elected, elected and all those things. So I leave you with this, all of you, uh -huh. please. I know that I used to be there. I was the organizer in the streets when McCain and Kennedy and everybody was pushing the immigration bill then. We always put down, let's do a ballot measure. Let's work locally. Let's get access to IDs. Let's figure out a way to, to address poverty, children's poverty in our immigrant communities. All of those things as you put your strategic planning together, nothing prevents you to add one more, one more thing to that list. More people like us to run for office. Enough, enough of us saying we're going to bring a chair to the table if there's not a seat at that table it is time for us to shake that table and it's time for us to take that chair because people had an opportunity to do what was right and they didn't and so now it's time for us to run it's time for us to get at that table and really try again to fix an immigration system that has left so much pain and trauma in our immigrant communities and to all my black and brown community members no no our solidarity, like there's nothing that is going to separate us. Uh, the more they come after us, the more we continue to work on pushing back against that rhetoric, but also take care of yourself. And that's one thing that I love about our movement is now, sorry about this, is now that we're doing this, we also center around self-care because this is painful. This is so personal to all of us. Um, 
we're going to get this done. And I believe it in my heart that movement work, what we do on the streets, that translates into powerful transformative uh, bills and policy. It's not who, you know, is in the White House. It's, it's what we do out here in the streets that will lead to the Civil Rights Act, like we saw, uh, to being able to organize in the workplace and organize unions. All that came from you all, the people in the streets demanding it. So remember you mean that riots? as we continue this work. And know that you will Is she advocating have a for riots? in the United States Congress. I'm not going anywhere. They want me to go. I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to stay here and remind them that immigrants exist, that uh, we kick ass, that we love. We, we do everything through love and compassion. We lead with compassion. And um, I'm so proud uh, to be part of everything that you all are doing. And thank you so much. Yes, we love my you gosh, so much. that just reminded me. Uh, shake the table, bring like, oh I my take gosh. the chair. We are here to stay this and is, live from Capitol Hill. This reminded um, me, it's always an honor to, uh, uh, to this be reminded in, me of that Hercules, Hercules, the way she <laughs> I'm sorry, that's what came to mind. I'm sorry, but can you see the danger here? Can you see where they're going with this? Can you see it? I want you to look a little bit forward and see what they're really planning. I want you to understand it. This is very dangerous. Very dangerous. And then there's a few of you. Wait a minute, Tori, are you guys still in the Zoom calls? Yes, we are. Because that was a Zoom call. So you always have to be paying attention. There have been a lot of conferences with the youth organization of the UN that will rattle you, that will terrify you. And while I could play those from over the past two weeks, all these zoom, 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 zoom calls, um, I'm going to do that after we see things that will help us understand how to tackle them. You can't disappoint people when you don't know why you're disappointing them, right? We have to know exactly uh, where this disappointment uh, must be directed, how you're going to tackle it. Um, that's extremely important. So let's get back to our president, who obviously it's now not allowed you know, you're not allowed to play his speech. It's considered hate, 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 hate. Nothing for nothing. They're together, and it's sad, actually, and it's sad for them, and it's sad for our country. What the Biden administration is doing to push young migrants into the hands of human traffickers and coyotes is dangerous, immoral, and indefensible. Hard to believe it's happening. Biden has failed in his number one duty as chief executive, enforcing America's laws. This alone should be reason enough for Democrats to suffer withering losses in the midterms and to lose the White House decisively four years from now. Actually, as you know, they just lost the White House, but it's one of those things. But who knows? Who knows? I may even decide to beat them for a third time, okay? Beat them for a third time. 
Joe Biden defunded the border wall and stopped all future construction, even on small open sections that just needed to be finished up. Routine little work, it's already been bought. Wait till the contractors get to them and they say, no, it costs us much more money not to finish the small section than if we finished it. That's going to be nice. Wait till you see those bills start pouring in. He revoked the executive order cracking down on deadly sanctuary cities. He has effectively ordered a shutdown of ICE, halting virtually all deportations. Everyone, murderers, everybody, no more. Let's not deport people. And restricting our law enforcement professionals, and they are great professionals. You have many of them represented here today. From conducting almost any immigration enforcement of any kind. The Biden policy of releasing criminals into the U.S. interior is making America into a sanctuary nation where criminals, illegal immigrants, including gang members and sex offenders, are set free into American communities. They have no idea who's coming up. And remember with the caravans, these countries, not only the three of them, but many, many countries all over the world, they're not giving us their best and their finest because they're intelligent. They're not giving us their best and their finest. Remember I said that. I said that a long time ago when I made the first remarks, when I came down the escalator with our great future first lady. Who says hello. Who loves you as much as I love you. But I said that a long time ago and we turned out to be 100% correct. Biden's radical immigration policies aren't just illegal. They're immoral, they're heartless, and they are a betrayal of our nation's core values. It's a terrible thing that's happening. The Republican Party must hold Joe Biden and the Democrats accountable. They ripped up the diplomatic agreements we negotiated with Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador to shut down illegal immigration. You know, they got a fortune. They got paid $500 million a year. When I came into office, those countries were refusing to take back illegal alien gang members, including MS-13, the most vicious, probably of them all. No matter where you go in the world, MS-13, they do things that even the worst don't think about. So I asked, how much do we pay these countries? How much do we pay them? Sir. We pay them approximately $500 million a year. It's a lot of money. I mean, it's peanuts compared to the way other countries rip us off, but that's a lot of money. I said, okay, we aren't going to pay them anymore because they wouldn't take back the criminals. And this was true with the Obama administration. It was true for many, many years. So we'd catch a murderer. We'd want to bring him back to Guatemala or Honduras. Salvador. They wouldn't take them back. No, we don't want them. We'd fly them in. They wouldn't let the plane land. We'd bus them in. They wouldn't let the buses get anywhere near the border. And I said, we're not going to pay them anymore. So after I said that and I stopped payment, you know, like a term that we use in the world of business, let's stop payment. So we stopped payment. They were delinquent. We stopped payment. And they very quickly came to the table and we made a deal, very quick deal. We still kept the money. We still didn't pay because oh, we made a deal. And when illegal aliens came across our border, 
They were rapidly deported and lovingly accepted by those countries from where they came. And it worked out great, so now they accept the people. And then we ultimately got along very well with those countries, those three countries, and many countries throughout the world because they respected us again. They didn't respect us. They couldn't believe what they were getting away with. But now Joe Biden has wrecked this great deal, wrecked it. And they're already doing what they were doing before, and they're taking the money. And that's just a small portion of what's going on. To top it all off, the Biden people are pushing a bill that would grant mass amnesty for millions of illegal aliens while massively expanding chain migration. That's where you come in and everybody comes in, your grandmother, your father, your mother, your brother, your cousins. They come in so easily, so, so crazy, so crazy. It even requires that the U.S. government provide illegal border crossers with taxable funded lawyers, lawyers. Anybody need a good lawyer? You can't have one. They get the lawyers, they get lawyers. They're probably very good too. The Democrat immigration bill is a globalist corp. You take a look at the corporatists. Big tech attack on hardworking citizens of every race, religion, color, and creed. And Republicans must ensure that it never is allowed to become federal law, which is what they want to do. We must stand tall in the party. We have to do this. We have to stand tall as the party for law-abiding Americans and others when they're in our country. Border security is just one of the many issues on which the new administration has already betrayed the American people. He didn't talk about this stuff. I debated him. He wasn't talking about this. He wasn't what he signed with those executive orders. They weren't things that were discussed. We didn't know all about him and the press because they're fake news. They're the biggest fakers there are. But the press refused to ask the questions. And when I asked the questions on television, on the debate, Chris Wallace in this case and others refused to let him answer. They refused to let him answer the questions. Maybe we could have found something, or if the media did its job, which they don't. Their callous indifference to working families is equally clear when it comes to the critical matter of getting America's children back to school. And they must get back and get back right now. Right now. Crazy. Terrible. Terrible. The Biden administration is actually bragging about the classroom education they are providing to migrant children on the border, while at the same time millions of American children are having their futures destroyed by Joe Biden's anti-science school closures. Think of it. We're educating students on the border, but our own people, the children of our citizens, citizens themselves, are not getting the education that they deserve. There's no reason whatsoever why the vast majority of young Americans should not be back in school immediately. The only reason that most parents do not have that choice is because Joe Biden sold out America's children 
to the teachers' unions. They did help elect him, select him. His select. position is morally inexcusable. You know that. Joe Biden has shamefully betrayed America's youth, and he is cruelly keeping our children locked in their homes. No reason for it whatsoever. They want to get out. They're cheating the next generation of Americans out of the future that they deserve, and they do deserve this future. They're going to grow up, and they're going to have a scar. It's a scandal of the highest order and one of the most great acts by any president in our lifetimes. It's the teachers' union. It's the votes, and it shouldn't happen. And I have nobody has more respect for teachers than I do. And I'll bet you a lot of the people within that union, they agree with everything I'm saying. Even the New York Times is calling out the Democrats. The mental and physical health of these young people is reaching a breaking point. Tragically, suicide attempts have skyrocketed, and student depression is now commonplace and at levels that we've never seen before. The Democrats now say we have to pass their $1.9 trillion boondoggle to open schools, but a very small part of it has to do with that. You know where it's going. It's going to bail out badly run Democrat cities, so much of it. But billions of dollars for schools remain unspent from the COVID relief bills that were passed last year. So on behalf of the moms, dads, and children of America, I call on Joe Biden to get the schools open and get them open now. They're great to do. When I left office, we were very proud of this because this was something that they said could not be done. The FDA said it. Everybody said it. Any article you read said it. Couldn't be done. It would be years and years. I handed the new administration what everyone is now calling a modern-day medical miracle. Some say it's the greatest thing to happen in hundreds of years, hundreds of years. Two vaccines produced in record time with numerous others on the way, including the Johnson & Johnson vaccine that was approved just yesterday. And therapeutic relief also, if you're sick. If you're sick, we have things now that are incredible. What has taken place over the last year under our administration. It would have taken any other president at least five years, and we got it done in nine months. Everyone says five years, so five years. Can you imagine if you had to go through what all of the countries of the world who are now getting the vaccine or soon will be getting it from various companies. But can you imagine if all of those countries had to go through what they've been going through over the last year? You'd lose hundreds of millions of people. I pushed the FDA. They have never been pushed before. They told me that loud and clear. They have never been pushed like I pushed them. I didn't like them at all. But once we got it done, I said, I now love you very much. What the Trump administration has done with vaccines has, in many respects, perhaps saved large portions of the world, not only our country, but large portions of the world. Not only did we push the FDA far beyond what the bureaucrats wanted to do, 
We also put up billions and billions of dollars, 10 billion, to produce the vaccines before we knew they were going to work. It was called a calculated bet or a calculated risk. We took a risk because if we didn't do that, you still wouldn't have the vaccines. You wouldn't have them for a long time. So think of that. We took this, this bet. We made a bet because we thought we were on a certain track, but you'd be starting to make them right now. It'd be a long time before you ever saw them. So that was a really important statement. What he said was, we just went with everyone and we didn't know if they're going to work or not. We just went with everyone so that research could be done. Now you have to think, he tasked and gave a lot of money to companies we're not even hearing about. So again, what he is telling you is more than what you know, is being regurgitated to you in regards to vaccines. It takes 60 to 100 days to manufacture and inspect new doses. And that means that 100% of the increased availability that we have now was initiated by our administration. 100%. In fact, the director of National Institutes of Health, Francis Collins, he's Fauci's boss, actually. I think he's a Democrat, too, by the way, recently said that our Operation Warp Speed was absolutely breathtaking and that the Trump administration deserves full credit, which we do. And as conservatives and Republicans, Never forget that we did it. Never let them take the credit because they don't deserve the credit. They just followed now, they're following our plan, but this has been something that they really call, they call it a, an absolute miracle. Joe Biden is only implementing the plan that we put in place. And if we had an honest media, which we don't, they would say it loud and clear. By the time I left that magnificent house at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, almost 20 million Americans had already been vaccinated. 1.5 million doses were administered on my final day alone. 1.5 million in a day. Yet Biden said just a few days ago that when he got here, meaning the White House, there was no vaccine. He said, there's no vaccine. Oh, good. Say it again, Joe. Now, I don't think he said that, frankly, in a malicious way. I really don't. I actually believe he said that because he didn't really know what the hell was happening. But never let them forget this was us. We did this. And the distribution is moving along according to our plan. And it's moving along really well. Uh, we had the military, what they've done, our generals and all of the people, what they've done is incredible. But remember, you know, we took care of a lot of people, including, I guess, on December 21st, we took care of Joe Biden because he got his shot. He got his vaccine. He forgot. It shows you how unpainful that vaccine shot is. So everybody go get your shot. He forgot. So... It wasn't very traumatic, obviously, but he got a shot. And it's good that he got a shot.
Last year, I predicted to you that the extremism, corruption, and incompetence of the Biden administration would be literally unprecedented in American history. Unfortunately, he has proven me 100% right. Already, as president, Biden has urged Congress to pass legislation shredding your Second Amendment. Your Second Amendment is in far bigger trouble than you know. And for four years, I fought like hell to save your Second Amendment, and we saved it 100%. We saved it. We signed an order to conduct politically correct, far-left indoctrination trainings in every department of the federal government, including the U.S. military after I had terminated these horrible things that were being preached to our military. And he wants it to go forward. It's insane. Within his first few hours, Biden eliminated our national security travel bans or nations plagued by terrorism. His first priority was to open our borders to unvetted travelers from Libya, Yemen, Syria, Somalia, and many other countries where strict vetting cannot occur. Countries that have tremendous problems, countries with tremendous terrorism problems. We did a travel ban. It was a real achievement. We told those countries, sorry, straighten out your act. We don't want people coming in where they had an ideology or a problem. We just couldn't have it. And it was incredible how it worked was incredible. And he terminated it. We had to get it approved. It went all the way up to the Supreme Court of the United States. We got it approved and he terminates it. In addition, he's already increased refugee admissions by nearly 10 times, but in effect, it'll soon be hundreds of times as millions of people flow up through our soon to be open borders. And by the way, the Border Patrol and ICs are some of the great heroes of our country. These are incredible people. I got to know them very well. Your family still cannot go out to eat at local restaurants, but Joe Biden is bringing in thousands upon thousands of refugees from all over the world, people that nobody knows anything about. We don't have crime records. We don't have health records. What are they bringing in with them? When I left office, we had virtually ended the endless wars. These endless wars, they go on forever. They go on forever. I would go to Dover and I would see caskets, coffins coming in. I'd see the parents and the wives and the husbands. I would see the kids. Endless wars, 19 years in Afghanistan. We have it down to almost nothing left. And I hear they might want to go back in. Uh, Iraq. Remember, I used to say, don't go in. But if you're going to go in, keep the oil. Well, we went in and we didn't keep the oil. We had made historic peace deals in the Middle East, like nobody thought were even possible. With not a drop of bloodshed. And by the way, not one American soldier has been killed in Afghanistan in over a year. Think of that. Not one. Those troops have largely come home. At the same time, the new administration unilaterally withdrew our crippling sanctions on Iran, foolishly giving away all of America's leverage before negotiations have even begun. Leave the sanctions, negotiate. 
Does anybody understand what I'm saying? So what is he telling you here? What he's telling you here is that he is destroying everything that he created. He is destroying the agreements made with nations. He is destroying everything. And he is creating wars. That is what he is telling. He is pointing out that the administration is creating more wars. He is pointing out that they are constantly pushing to dismantle every aspect of his actions for our nation to regain its sovereignty and its power. He is making it clear that this is your future. We are now being handed over to globalists. He's making it clear. Now it gets even clearer. Are there any good business people? You don't have to be a good, are there any bad business people? They took off the sanctions. They took off the sanctions. They said, well, we're gonna not have any sanctions. Let's negotiate a deal. I don't know, Matt Schlapp. I don't think you would have done that. Do you think so, Matt? I don't think so. Mercedes wouldn't have. No, you do that, you make a deal, and then you do what they wanted. I, I will tell you something, and I said it. Had we had a fair election, the results would have been much different, and we would have had a deal. We would have had a deal with Iran within the first week. They wanted those sanctions off. It took them off for nothing, for nothing. Now you watch how tough they negotiate. In another horrific surrender, he agreed to get back into the World Health Organization for approximately $500 million a year, which is what we were paying. When I withdrew from the WHO, and you know the whole story with that, they called it badly. They really are puppets for China. They called and they wanted us to stay in. I said, how much are we paying? Approximately $500 million. How much is China paying? A much larger in terms of population country. Sir, they're paying $39 million. I said, why are we paying $500 million and they're paying 39 I could tell you why. Because the people that made the deal are stupid. That's why. So, so. <laughs> and I had no idea how popular it was. I didn't even know if I would be able to politically, because people were so happy when I did get out. But I said, so we went in, we could get it for 39 million, which is what China, not 500 million, which is what we were stupidly paying. And they said, we can make a deal. We want you to go in, we can make a deal. Okay, and I, did, I decided not to do it. We could have had it for 39. We could have had it for the same as China. And they decide now to go back into the World Health Organization and pay 500 million. What the hell is wrong with them? No, no, this is just, this is just emblematic. It's a tremendous amount of money, but compared to trillions, it's not, but it's a tremendous amount of money. Why would China pay 39 million and we're paying almost 500 million? Why? So we could have made the same deal that China had, 39 million, and they just say, we're going back in. We're going back into the World Health Organization. They go back in, they pay 500. It is so sad. So now he is explaining to you why he pulled out of the World Health Organization. He is explaining to you the insane money that is being spent, right? So now what you have to question, what you have to think about, what is he telling me with this? Aside from the fact that they're just throwing away money to the who, 
right? Think, why would the who need that money from us? What are we funding? Why are we paying them? These are the questions that he's raising. So this is it. Why are we paying this money to the who? What is the who serving us or doing for our nation that we are paying so much more money? If you would say that the World Health Organization is getting this money from us because it's helping with world health and pandemics and, uh, you know, um, outbreaks of certain diseases that are a threat to our national security, you would most likely assume that uh, it would be per your population how much money you would pay them. Like we have 300 million people. So let's say 300 million people. So here's what we're going to do. These 300 million people are going to be represented with a dollar sign. So to protect our 300 million people, we would pay X amount. Well, China has 20% of the global population. How the heck are they paying less? So the question you should ask yourself as a business dealing on a dumbed down level, right? Where we're like, all right, let's pretend that the who is really really doing what they're supposed to do. What is it that we are funding? What are we paying? What are we paying the who to do in such a disproportionate way as compared to all the other nations across the planet that have a greater population than we have? Because if it's you're protecting my citizens and we should contribute to this, wouldn't it be fair if there was an organization that was assisting in world pandemics, threat health, uh, innovation in health, uh, assisting with health, wouldn't it make sense that it would be kind of like on a scale of, let's see how many people you have that we're serving. And obviously we're doing things in nations where they can't afford it, for example. So when we're not protecting your people, your nation is contributing this part to the good things that we're doing, right? Well, let's let's look at it from a business perspective, right? Business perspective. So what is he telling us about the who. Why did we stop funding them? Is it because China's paying less, yet they have 20% of the world's population? And mind you, most of these flus and epidemics come from them. (laughs) So that's bizarre, right? So the question is, what is it that he is trying to tell you? I want you to think about it. We'll answer that question, but I want you to think about it. Just like the Iran and the World Health Organization, Joe Biden put the United States back into the very unfair and very costly Paris Climate Accord without negotiating a better deal. They wanted us so badly back in. I'll tell you, they wanted us. I was getting called from all of the countries. You must come back into the Paris Accord. I said, tell me why. Give me one good reason. First of all, China doesn't kick in for 10 years. Russia goes by an old standard, which was not a clean standard, and other countries, but we get hit right from the beginning. Would have cost us hundreds of thousands and millions of jobs. It was a disaster, but they go back in. I could have made an unbelievable deal and gone back in, but I didn't want to do that. Surrendering millions of jobs and trillions of dollars to all of these other countries, almost all of them that were in the deal. So. They have favorable treatment. We don't have favorable treatment. And we just said, we're going back in. To go back in, they wanted us so badly. You could have negotiated. If you wanted to go back in, which frankly, we have the cleanest air, the cleanest water, and everything else that we've ever had. So I don't know why we have to. 
And what good does it do when we're clean, but China's not, and Russia's not, and India's not, so they're pouring fumes, you know, the world is actually a small piece of the universe, right? They're pouring fumes, and we're trying to protect everything and building products for three times more than is necessary. No, they could have made a great deal. If they were going to go back in, that's fine. But they could have made a great deal instead of just saying, we're back in. These people. And in one of his first official acts, which was incredible because, again, he talked about energy. He never said he was going to do this. He canceled the Keystone XL pipeline, destroying not the 8,000 or the 9,000 or the 11,000 jobs that you hear, but 42,000 great paying jobs on just about day one, right? He never talked about that during a debate because he wouldn't have gotten away with it. Well, he would have because they cheated so much it probably wouldn't have done. Cheated, no, but cheated. that was not a topic of conversation, remember? Fracking, you can frack. Oh, we love fracking. During the primary, no fracking. As soon as he got through that, he said, no, of course, everybody can frack. No fracking. You wait till you see what happens with your gasoline. Wait till you see what happens. And we cannot let this stuff continue to go on. One of my proudest accomplishments is present. We cannot let stuff like this continue to go on. Very important. Very important. What he just said was to make America energy independent. The United States became the number one energy superpower on Earth. Number one. Became number one. Bigger than Saudi Arabia, bigger than Russia by a lot. We left them all in the dust. They were all in the dust. But if the Democrats have their way, we are heading from energy dominance to energy disaster. That's what's happening. You have to see what's going on. Everything's being closed up. It's a disaster. The blackouts we saw in California last summer and all the time, and the windmill calamity that we're witnessing in Texas, great state of Texas. We love Texas, but it's so sad when you look at it. That'll just be the start. How bad is wind power? So I talk about it all the time at CPAC, right? We went to CPAC, remember last, I said, we're going to watch the president. Well, uh, Alice, uh, the wind isn't blowing. I don't believe we'll have any electricity. Remember, we would, we would kid, but I wasn't actually kidding. It's such, an it's such an expensive form of energy. It's so bad for the environment. It kills the birds. It destroys the landscapes. And remember, these are structural columns with fans on them. They wear out. And when they wear out all over the country, you see them. Nobody takes them down. They're rotting. They're rusting. How this is environmentally good for our country. And it costs many, many times more than natural gas, which is clean. It costs many more to, and can fuel our great factories. Wind. I just wanted to say something on the wind farms. So I noticed something when I... Um take my daughter to school every morning on the highway i go by uh, in down uh, you know on the east side of cleveland east side where it's the most impoverished area and you know uh people are you know living in poverty in that area they have three 
windmills, four actually, one's on one side of the highway towards Lake and then the other three somewhere else. That is actually quite interesting because it's like, why are you having these wind farms in the middle of where people are living? It is known that uh, these uh, wind, <laughs> wind generators um, emit frequencies that uh, disrupt health. And, and deteriorate health and um, uh, impose uh, certain changes. We're going to get into that, actually, um, because tonight Gavin can't um, have with me the um, stereo on Friday night. We're going to be, I'm going to see if we can talk about that with him on uh, wind powers and um, what they do uh, to human beings. You can't do that. And and uh, solar, I love solar, but it doesn't have the capacity to do what we have to do to make America great again. Sorry, it just doesn't have it. <laughs> Under the radical Democrat policies, the price of gasoline has already surged 30% since the election and will go to $5, $6, $7, and even higher. So enjoy that when you go to the pump and they'll say, that'll be about uh, $200 to fill up your van. Go to this. Remember, they used to go to the little small vans. They got away from the big ones that everybody wanted. They went to the small ones. Well, you know what? Probably a good investment as long as these guys have their say. Because you know, it's a, it's a shame what's happening. Energy prices are going to go through the roof, and that includes your electric bills. That includes any bill having to do with energy. Our biggest cause. We will now be relying on Russia and the Middle East for oil. And they talk about Russia, Russia, Russia. What's better than what this guy's done for Russia? I had oil where they were actually paying you to take it, okay? You know, that was a little, remember they were gonna give you 37 a barrel, but you had to take it away. You had free oil almost for a period of time. And one way I was proud of it, but we also had to save the energy industry and it worked out well. And I dealt with Russia and Saudi Arabia and they cut back on production and we got it back up. But now it's going the opposite because now they're taking this incredible energy independence away from the people of our country. And you're going to see costs go like you have never seen them go before. It's a very sad and very stupid thing that they're doing. The Biden policies are a massive win for other oil producing countries and a massive loss for the United States and our great citizens. Joe Biden and the Democrats are even pushing policies that would destroy women's sports. A lot of new records are being broken in women's sports. Hey. So we're going to skip over this section. So he's he's telling you about the gas prices going up, killing that independence, right? So let's see. Let's go to, um, wait, where is it? Nothing less than, they've been a catastrophe for American workers and for American families. Back. Better than what this guy's done for Russia. No, forward. As you can see, the early weeks of Biden administration, there we go. nothing less than, they've been a catastrophe for American workers and for American families. The task of our mission and for us, it's our movement. As I said, a movement like has never been seen, I think we can probably say, never been seen anywhere in the world. I mean, nobody's ever seen a movement like this. I, I'd grow up and I'd watch somebody who came in second in New Hampshire, 
first in Iowa, and that was the end, and they became famous for the rest of their lives. We won the election twice. I mean, you know, think about it. Twice. The task for our movement and our party is to stand up to this destructive agenda with confidence and with resolve. The future of the Republican Party is as a party that defends the social, economic, and cultural interests and values of working American families of every race, color, and creed. That's why the party is growing so rapidly and is becoming a different party. And it's becoming a party of love. You have to see outside the streets. I mean, there's such love. Did you hear that? The, the Republican Party is becoming a different party. A different party. That's right. Now it's a party that's incredible. The people, the spirit. And there are, as you probably heard a little while ago, I mean, there's more spirit now than there's ever been, including even before the election. More spirit now than we've ever seen because people are seeing how bad it can be. And again, I want to thank Rush and Catherine because uh, what he did to get the word out has been incredible. Some people are irreplaceable, as Sean Hannity would say, and he said Rush is irreplaceable, but his spirit lives on, and that's uh, something that we need and we love. Republicans believe that the needs of every citizen must come first. In fact, America must come first. We don't put it first, they don't put it first. Over the past four years, my administration delivered for Americans of all backgrounds like never before, like never before. We built the strongest economy in the history of the world, raised wages and achieved the lowest African-American, Hispanic American, Asian American unemployment rates ever, ever, ever recorded. It was so great for everybody of all backgrounds that even after the China virus, we are leading the world. Nobody's even close. We're leading it in the comeback. Our economic comeback has been incredible. That's because the financial and economic foundation we built was so strong that unlike other countries who are having a hard time, we didn't break. We came roaring back and now our stock market and your 401ks are again at record levels, higher than ever before actually. Many people have asked, what is Trumpism? A new term being used more and more. I'm hearing that term more and more. I didn't come up with it. But what it means is great deals, great trade deals, great ones. Not deals where we give away everything, our jobs, our money. Like the USMCA replacement of the horrible NAFTA. NAFTA was one of the worst deals ever made, probably the worst trade deal ever made. And we ended it. You know, a lot of people forget we ended it. Now we have the US. MCA, Mexico, Canada. It's incredible what it's done for our farmers who are doing fantastically. Did you see grain prices and grain sales are at an all-time high? Wheat, all-time high. He's so showing. many elements of farms and farmers, and they love me. And He shows just how many successes. He's like, pay attention. Don't give up because all of this is going to be undone. We're fighting. And thank God we've rebuilt our military but it's a tremendous economic threat. Never forget it. These are the convictions that define our movement today and must define the Republican Party in the years ahead. Very simple. It's really quite simple, isn't it? Another one of the most urgent issues facing the Republican Party is that of ensuring fair 
honest, and secure elections. The foundation of our nation. Such a disgrace, such a disgrace. Such a disgrace. We must pass comprehensive election reforms and we must do it now. The Democrats use the China virus as an excuse to change all of the election rules without the approval of their state legislatures, making it therefore illegal. What did he just tell you? So what they did, they used the excuse of a pandemic to violate the laws of your state and your nation to change the rules without having them passed. Are you paying attention what he just gave you? This may answer questions as to where's Air Force One? Why is this? Why is that? This is what you need to do. These things aren't out in the public. He's hinting to you where it's all going to come back to. It had a massive impact on the election. Again, you have to go to the legislatures to get these approvals. This alone would have easily changed the outcome of the election at levels that you wouldn't have even believed. Even with COVID, even with all of the things, the numbers are staggering. We can never let this or other abuses of the 2020 election be repeated or happen again. Can never let that happen again. You see what's going on. We've been set back so greatly with other countries and with the world. We need. We have been set back so greatly. Wait a minute. What do you mean set back? You're talking as a nation or what we were doing? Are you saying that we're delayed? I see. Election integrity and election reform immediately. Republicans should be the party of honest elections that can give everyone confidence in the future of our country. Without honest elections, who has confidence? Who has confidence? Boom. This issue is being studied and examined, but the reality is you cannot have a situation where ballots are indiscriminately pouring in from all over the country, tens of millions of And all over the world. Don't forget the, the absentee. Place where illegal aliens and dead people are voting and many other horrible things are happening that are too voluminous to even mention. But people know, I mean, it's being studied and the level of dishonesty is not to be believed. It's being studied. Hold on a second. Studied and examined. Studied and examined on how they changed the laws illegally that didn't pass through making laws. And studied and examined of the dead people. And I know a lot of you have been helping me out on that, right? Uh, studied and examined is the key here. Studied and examined. What was he telling you? Studied and examined. We have a very sick and corrupt electoral process that must be fixed immediately. This election was rigged and the Supreme Court and other courts didn't want to do anything about it. You won. Yes, he did. He did win. Look at all these low energy clowns here. We do. Posers. 
If you just take that one element where they didn't go through legislature, it's illegal. You can't do it. It's in the Constitution. They didn't have the courage, the Supreme Court. They didn't have the courage to act, but instead used process and lack of standing. I was told the president of the United States has no standing. It's my election. It's your election. We have no standing. We had almost 20, if you think of it, we had almost 20 states go into the Supreme Court so that we didn't have a standing problem. They rejected it. They rejected it. They should be ashamed of themselves. What is he telling what you? they've done to our country. They didn't have the guts or the courage to make the right decision. Mm -hmm. They didn't want to talk about it. Yes, indeed. Legislatures Here we go. as required by the Constitution of the United States. And these are numbers that are massive. These aren't little numbers. These are numbers that in each state is a transformative number. It changes the outcome of the election. And it's not close. Regardless of your political views, this should concern you as a constitutional matter. And the Supreme Court, again, didn't have the guts or the courage to do anything about it. And neither did other judges. So, can you see how he's laid out everything for you? Here is how you tackle this issue. It's a constitutional matter. They changed your state laws without passing it through the legislature. They pushed this along. They broke the law. The main constitution in your state constitution tells you this. So that means they all knowingly and willingly, knowingly and willingly broke the law. And this is being studied and examined. Do you see why it's important that all of us start tackling our states? Do you see what he's been telling you? He's not been sitting. There's a lot being going on in the background we the people are just making the noise and 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 showing hey look we're here look what we're doing and they're like don't get any funny ideas well you know when things are under scope of such grand crimes they are not out in the open i mean look at this we already know that murder occurred in new york they were sending infected people with body bags yet they want to exit him out with a simple me too listen carefully to more that he says that you probably missed and democrats even admitted in time magazine which is i would say on the liberal side Ah. That they couldn't, they just couldn't hold it in. They had to brag about the it. The AFL-CIO. They, they had to brag about it. They couldn't do it. You got to read the story. It's a disaster. No, they it's didn't a disaster brag about for our it. country that we can allow something so corrupt to happen. Read that article. Read that article. Do you know what that article did? That was their defense in the court system as, oh, no, no, no. We meant it as a good thing. We weren't trying to subvert or usurp the government. Uh, this is them explaining themselves. Do you know what? Something Patrick Berge has always told me. If if you are explaining yourself, you are losing. If you are explaining yourself, you are losing. That's a quite fascinating right there. Who was explaining themselves? They were. Oh, we were just ushering things along. You mean the way I ushered shit in Ukraine twice? And let me not name all the other countries that have been hidden in big fat NDAA bills. Oh, yeah. That's going to be coming out quite soon. I really encourage you. You read that article. Yet all of the election integrity measures in the world will mean nothing if we don't have 
free speech. Mm-hmm. And that's where we're at now. If Republicans can be censored for speaking the truth and calling out corruption, we will not have democracy and we will have only left-wing tyranny. And we can do this. We can do this. We're smarter than they are. We're tougher than they yes, are. Yes, we are. For some reason, we just don't. We don't get it done. We let them attack our businesses and we. Dan Newhouse. Anthony Gonzalez. That's another beauty. Oh. Fred Upton. Did you hear that? Anthony Gonzalez. Who have I been talking about? Anthony Gonzalez. This is quite important. We're not waiting, right? Didn't I talk about Anthony Gonzalez? We're not waiting. It's like, no, dude. You're toast. You are super toast. What happened? Hold on. There we go. They cut that out. Remember when he was naming names? Now we have to use Republicans to take care of the election frauds and all of the other things that are happening that shouldn't be allowed to happen in our country. It's very simple. Because of my efforts campaigning, we had huge gains in the House, and I helped keep many senators in their seats, and they will admit it, so that it's now 50-50 instead of Republicans being down anywhere from 8 to 10 seats. And they'll admit it. We'd be down eight to ten seats if I didn't campaign. We held Correct. rallies for some of the senators that were down. Correct. And nobody Hold on. <laughs> Thank you. We have to have a sense of humor. Thanks to my coattails, Democrats failed to flip That's what's a up. single state legislature. They Think couldn't. Or a America. Thank you all. Thank you. Wait, wait, wait. This is a terrible, terrible, Here painful struggle path ahead will not be easy, but we will win. We are going to win. Ultimately, we always win. And when we do, we will show that this was the moment when we could have given up, when we could have despaired, but instead we chose to keep on pushing forward. The greater the challenge and tougher the task, the more determined we must be to pull through to triumph. We have to have triumph. We have to have victory. With the talent and dedication of everyone here today, and you have tremendous, not only dedication, tremendous talent in this room. I know many of you. That is exactly what we will do. We will go on to victory. We will summon the spirit of generations of American patriots before us, like those heroes who crossed the Delaware, conquered the Rockies, stormed the beaches, won the battles, and tamed the unknown frontiers. We will persist, and we will prevail. We're tougher than they are. We're stronger than they are. Together in the coming years, we will carry forward the torch of American liberty. We will lead the conservative movement and the Republic Party back to a totally conclusive victory, and we've had tremendous victories. Don't ever forget it. Here, now this is oh no oh no oh no speech. i accidentally rewinded i want you to listen to the end of this speech it was the most important part gosh darn it who 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 will that be i wonder damn it stupid fingers Standing before you today, I am supremely confident that for our movement, for our party, and for our country, our brightest days are just ahead. 
and that together we will make America prouder, freer, stronger, and greater than it ever has been before. Thank you, CPAC. We have to have victory. With the talent and dedication of everyone here today, and you have tremendous, not only dedication, tremendous talent in this room. I know many of you. That it's is exactly part. what we will do. We will go on to victory. We will summon the spirit of generations of American patriots before us, like those heroes who crossed the Delaware, conquered the Rockies, stormed the beaches, won the battles, and tamed the unknown frontiers. We will persist and we will prevail. We're tougher than they are. We're stronger than they are. Together in the coming years, we will carry forward the torch of American liberty. We will lead the conservative movement and the Republican Party back to a totally conclusive victory. And we've had tremendous victories. Don't ever forget it. With your help, we will take back the House. We will win the Senate. And then a Republican president will make a triumphant return to the White House. And I wonder who that will be. I wonder who that will be. So just a reminder, we started off with 2017, and now we're going to end with 2017. Listen. Hold on. And it's coming back, and it's roaring, and you can hear it. It's going to be bigger and better. It, it is going to be. It is going to be. Remember. And it's roaring. It's going to be bigger and better and stronger than ever before. Remember what he said. Thank you. Remember what he said. It's going to be bigger and better. It's roaring. Now, that fire is identical to the fire now. Does that look like someone who lost? Does that look like someone who doesn't know what's coming? Does that look like someone that is telling you to wait to 2024 or 2022? What does that look like? <laughs> look like someone knows exactly what's coming and it's going to be crazy but we're getting a super v super duper v so everyone god bless i can't wait for tomorrow what's going on march 4th well, he kind of told you what's being examined. creation waiting. Humanity is aching to see its sons and daughters waking. In the earth, you can hear the sound. Dead men shake the ground. Salvation is coming. So, children, come and run it.